At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Please take out the Word of God and turn in it, if you would, to the book of 2 Peter and the third chapter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter number 3. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is launch a new four-part series that's focusing on 2 Peter chapter number 3. And as you get into chapter 3 of 2 Peter, you find out that the subject matter that Peter is addressing is the subject matter of biblical prophecy. The theological term for that is eschatology, which is the study of last things, And Peter is going to be talking about the subject of the second coming of Christ, and he's going to be talking about the coming future judgment on the world. Now, biblical prophecy has gotten a bad rap, a bad rap even in the church, and some of that bad rap has been earned. Too often, some in the church have spent time setting dates on when these events are going to occur, and Jesus said, you can't set dates. Too many people have become overzealous in their speculations about the old times. They become careless in what they have to say. And then also some of the bad rap is deserved because of the all-too-frequent tactic of what is called newspaper eisegesis. That means when someone reads current events into the prophecies rather than analyzing events by the prophecies. (coughs) Excuse me. Yeah, thank you. All that tree pollen is getting to me. Now, also on the other hand, to some, Bible prophecy seems to be cryptic and confusing. They often will say, well, there's just too many interpretations out there. I mean, I I think biblical prophecy is above my spiritual pay grade. They might say that only PNTs can understand biblical prophecy. What's a PNT? Well, that's a prophecy nerd type. And maybe some of you are prophecy nerd types. But as one of my former professors, Charles Ryrie, in seminary would say, some people just choose to be eschatological agnostics. That means I don't really know what's going to happen. And since I'm unsure, no one can be sure. So why do we even bother talking about biblical prophecy? Also, we want to say, though, to some biblical prophecy seems a little too frightening, a little too negative. You know, they might think, I don't like to think about divine judgment. Or they might even say, surely God isn't going to judge the world, and so they choose to skip over the subject matter of biblical prophecy. And men and women, this is where our beliefs regarding the Bible as being God's word to us become so pivotal Because if God's word talks about it, we need to talk about it. You know, prophecy is not a novelty category of scripture. Someone has calculated that 28% of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. And someone else has also estimated that there are in the Bible 1,800 prophecies in the some 8,300 verses that we have, which would be nearly one-fourth of Scripture 
is biblical prophecy. And then when you look at the prophecies regarding the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the prophecies that relate to the second coming are eight to one compared to the first coming of Christ. And so in the Old Testament, we have biblical prophecy regarding future events and the end of the age. Jesus gave discourses on future events and the end of the age. And the apostles also taught about future events and the end of the age, just as we see here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, why does the Old Testament do that? Why did Jesus teach about it? Why did the apostles teach about it? Well, I think it's like Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. I mean, of all people, we ought to be aware of God's program and what he is about. Now, before we actually dive into chapter 3, I want to share with you some positive aspects of biblical prophecy and the teaching of the end of the age. It actually has positive things it brings to us. The first one I want you to see is that biblical prophecy about the end times breeds confidence for us that God is truly the ruler of the universe. When we see what he has to say, we realize that it's not somebody else, some evil person or group of evil nations. He himself is the one who is writing history. So that's a positive aspect to biblical prophecy regarding the end times. There is a second positive aspect I want us to see is that biblical prophecy about the end times calms our fear about the future. Because sometimes if we don't know any better, we might think, well, Who's really going to win this whole thing? How's that really going to end at the end? What all is going to happen? And biblical prophecy about the end times will calm our fear about the future. And then there's a third positive aspect I want us to see about biblical prophecy regarding the end times. Not only does it breed confidence that God is truly the ruler of the universe and calm our fear about the future, but it motivates us to remain on mission. I am, you are, here on a mission from God when we're following Jesus. And when we look at biblical prophecy regarding the end times, it helps to motivate us to remain on mission. We may not understand every detail about the end of the age, but much of what is involved in the end of the age in the future, Scripture makes crystal clear. So rather than dismissing biblical prophecy due to its misuse by some, and rather than ignoring it because we don't understand everything about it, and rather than rejecting it because we just sort of want to detour around any talk of future judgment, I think what Peter wants us to do and what God wants us to do today, which is the title of my message today, is to embrace biblical prophecy, to embrace it. What we need to do is do what Paul talked about in 2 Timothy 2. We need to handle the word of truth accurately. So that is our goal for today, to do that very thing. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to those whom he is writing, I have some vital information I want you to understand. And he is also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, communicating to me and to you, to us today, 
that he has some vital information he wants us to understand. So that's the value of looking at 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, I do want to put chapter 3 into a context of the entire book. You have three different chapters. You have chapter number 1, where it talks about cultivation of spiritual maturity. In chapter number 2, he talks about caution about false teachers. In chapter number 3, he talks about confidence in Jesus' return. In chapter number 1, the emphasis is on exhortation. The theme is holiness, and the focus is ourselves. In chapter 2, the emphasis is on denunciation of the false teachers. The theme is heresy, and the focus is on our adversaries. And then in chapter 3, the emphasis is on anticipation, the theme is hope, and the focus is on our future. Now, if you missed, we did a series on chapter 1, we did a series on chapter 2. If you missed those and you would like to go back and and listen to those or read about those, uh, you can go to brucehess.com where we have populated a number of our messages there, and you can find our series on chapter one there at brucehess.com, and also find the series on chapter two at brucehess.com. So what I want to do as we begin today is I want to read through um, verses one to six of chapter three, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read what Peter communicates. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the very beginning of creation. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now, those first six verses break into two parts. First of all, in verses one and two, we have the call to remember. And then in verses three to six, we have the skepticism of the world. So let's begin by looking at his call to remember in the first couple of verses. Look at verse one. Notice he addresses them with an interesting term there in verse one. He addresses them as beloved. It's a a term of endearment. He uses that word to describe them in verse 1. He uses it in verse 8. He uses it in verse 14. He uses it again in verse 17. Now, we don't usually address people today in our normal interchange with that term beloved. Today, we might say something like this. My dear friends, I'm writing to you about this. What Peter is doing when he he addresses them here as beloved, as his dear friends, he is leaning in with them. He wants to share his heart with them. And notice what it says there in verse 1. He says, I'm writing to you. This is the second letter that I am writing to you to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. The idea is he'd written another letter to them, probably 1 Peter, 
And he says, I want to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I want to refresh your memory about the right kind of thinking that we are to have as followers of Jesus. I think this is really what he's saying. He's saying it is important for new believers to learn what the Bible teaches about the return of Jesus and the coming judgment upon the world. I think he's also saying it is important for seasoned believers to be reminded of what the Bible teaches regarding the return of Jesus and the coming judgment. Why is that so important? Well, it is, at least for me, it is easy to drift into business as usual, just to go with the flow of life. And he says, I want you to remember some things. I want to refresh your memory. I want you to have right thinking. What does he want them to remember? Well, look at verse 2. He said, I want you to remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. The words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. That's the first thing I want you to remember. What's this referring to? It's referring to Old Testament predictions regarding the return of Jesus and the coming judgment on the world. Now, we could spend probably a whole week looking at passages in the Old Testament that talk about this. I want to take a look at one from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 and 16, where Isaiah, the prophet, writes this. He says, See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his swift chariots of destruction roar like a whirlwind. And he, the Lord, will bring punishment with the fury of his anger and the flaming fire of his hot rebuke. The Lord, Yahweh, will punish the world by fire and by his sword, and many will be killed by the Lord. He says, I want you to remember what the Old Testament prophets taught about. I want you to remember what they said about Jesus' return, the Messiah's return in triumph, and I want you to see what they talked about regarding the coming judgment of the world. First thing I want you to remember. Second thing I want you to remember, he says, is the commandment of the Lord and Savior. I want you to remember, he says, the statements of Jesus himself. And again, we could look at multiple statements that Jesus gave regarding his return in the coming judgment. But I want to look at one from Matthew 24, verses 27 to 30. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then there's this ominous statement, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Just that idea of judgment coming. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. In other words, he's saying, I want us to be remembering the statements that Jesus made regarding his return and the coming judgment that's coming upon the world. And then I believe there's a third thing he wanted us to remember. It's not only the words spoken before by the holy prophets of the Old Testament and the discourses of the Lord, but also the testimonies of the apostles. Now remember, as 2 Peter is being written, the content of the New Testament is forming. Some of it had been written, some of it had yet been written. 
But I want to look at one passage from Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where he says this, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What's the plan? To deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In other words, he's saying we need to remember the testimonies of the apostles as they talked about the return of Jesus and as they talked about the coming judgment that is coming upon the world. Now, right now, I, I, I just want us to hit pause for a moment. So we're just going to pause for a moment. I want to ask you a question, and you can just think about it, this in your own heart before the Lord. Here's the question. How much of this truth is part of our conscious thought? How much is this truth about the second coming of Christ and the coming judgment on the world is something that we think about, that we are somewhat aware of? Say, I don't know about you, but I find it easy to go a week And this concept doesn't cross my mind. It's easy to go a month. It's easy to go months detached from the reality of the return of Christ and the coming judgment upon the world. The truth is, men and women, this world is on a divine countdown. And it's easy to forget that. At least it is for me. Our believing neighbors and our believing friends, our believing co-workers and our, believing, our unbelieving, rather, neighbors and friends and co-workers and, and fellow students are under an approaching an appointment with a living God. And, and what he's saying is we just need to remember that. We need to be reminded of that. It's important that we're reminded of that. So first of all, We have this call to remember in the first two verses. Secondly, he wants to talk about the skepticism of the world in verses three to six. Notice how verse three begins. He says, know this first of all. In other words, he's saying, above all, I want you to be aware of something. What are we to be aware of? Well, verse three, he says that in the last days, what's that refer to? That refers to the days before Jesus' return. And if you want a description of what those days are gonna be like, you can go to 2 Timothy chapter three. In verses 1 to 5, it describes that. But he says, you need to be aware above all that in these last days before Jesus' return, he says in verse 3, that mockers will come with their mocking. And that's the way the New American Standard translates it. We don't really talk that way, mockers coming with mocking. It's really a Hebrew idiom, comes out of the Hebrew background, where they're using a noun and the verb, and they blend them together because it's really talking about blatant mocking, communicates blatant scoffing. He says, in the last days before Jesus' return, there are going to be cynics that exist in the world who will poke fun. Why do they poke fun? Well, verse 3, it says, they are following after their own lusts. I like the way the Net Bible translates that phrase. They are being propelled by their own evil urges. Let's go ahead and take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
Just a couple of the verses there when it talks about the last days. It says, describing what people will be like then, it says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that is just on social media, men and women, right? Yeah. That's what the whole world's going to be like. And they're scoffing. They're scoffing. Verse 4 tells us what they are scoffing about. Verse 4 They say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is Jesus supposed to come back? Reminds me of a Newsmax magazine article, the front cover. It says the Jesus question, you have a picture of Jesus there, and the question is, will he ever return? Will he ever return? Is he ever coming back? Come on. Notice verse 4. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, we might say today, as far back as anyone can remember, all continues, verse 4, as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, we would say, hey, as far back as anyone can remember, the world is just functioning the same as it's always functioned. We just go on. It just goes on, it goes on, it goes on. These mockers, these scoffers, have a naturalistic view of life. Basically, their belief is that God doesn't directly intervene in this world. Either he doesn't directly intervene because he does not exist, the scoffers would say, or he does not intervene directly because he's fully disconnected from this world. And many live their life around us with that kind of a naturalistic worldview. God doesn't directly intervene in this world at all. In other words, scoffers might say to us today, wait a minute, Bruce, (laughs) get this straight. You believe that there's a day of reckoning coming? I mean, come on. What kind of hogwash is that? If it hasn't ever happened before, it's not gonna happen now. You know, you're, you're nuts. You're nuts to believe something like that. You must be intellectually stunted to buy into that one. They would be saying, in no sense is there a coming ultimate accountability in this world. Now, there's a fascinating verse in verse 5. I want you to look at it with me. In the New American Standard, it says this. For when they maintain this, you know, you got to be nuts. This is hogwash. There's no coming ultimate accountability. When they maintain this, it says in the New American Standard, it escapes their notice. Now, if you, I love the New American Standard. I've used it for multiple decades. If you have one, you'll notice in the margin, there is a marginal translation option to these words. And, and it says right here, for me, an optional translation is they are willfully ignorant of And as much as I love the New American Standard, this is one of the places where I wish that the editors had taken the the marginal translation option and used it as the main part of the text. 
Because when you look at all the other conservative translations of the Bible, whether it's the ESV or the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV or the New Living Translation or the Net Bible or the New King James Version, all of them, all of them utilize what in the New American Standard is the marginal translation option of they are willfully ignorant of. And the idea is this, when it says they are willfully ignorant, the idea is they deliberately overlook. They turn a blind eye to. They choose to ignore. What is it that they are willfully ignorant of, they're deliberately overlooking, that they're choosing to ignore? Well, Peter says they are choosing to ignore two of the most significant events of the Old Testament. Two significant events of the Old Testament where God was directly involved with his world. And they choose to turn a blind eye to that. They choose to ignore it. They deliberately overlook it. Well, what are those two significant events of the Old Testament? Well, the first one he mentions is the work of God in creation. And he talks about there in the rest of verse 5. Talks about how by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. God spoke his word and he created creation. Now, I have often said that God is in the broadcasting business and God is broadcasting 24 hours of every day. And I could give you multiple examples of that, but I want to talk about this particular one here, and that is the work of God in creation. The broadcasting goes out every single day. There is a creator, there is a creator, there is a creator, there is a creator. Does it make any difference if you're talking about the macro part of creation, just the, the immensity of this world, the, the incredibleness that the sun is placed right where it is, which doesn't fry us or freeze us, and all of that just points out to, to the fact that there is a creator, there is a creator. Not only the macro part of creation, the micro part of creation, you know, just look at the complexity of the way our eye operates. And the message is there is a creator, there is a creator, there is a creator. You could take the same thing with your ear and the complexity of the way that it is designed. The message is always going out, there is a creator, there is a... Look at our circulatory system. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on. God is in the broadcasting business. And you can see it in creation. There is a creator there is a creator, there is a creator. Now, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one. He says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Seen in what way? Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. There is a creator, there is a creator. Creation is a blinking neon sign. It never stops. There is a creator. There is a creator. It is a never-ending, non-verbal sermon that is being preached every single day. So the first thing that they choose to overlook and ignore is the work of God in creation. There's a second one, though, that he wants to talk about, and that is the global flood of Noah's day. And he talks about that in verse six. 
Notice he talked about how by the word of God, the heavens existed and the earth was formed. And then he talks about through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He's talking about the global flood of Noah's day. And and there in verse six, when he says, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Uh, the, The original word is, Kata Kaludzo, K-A-T-A-K-L-U-D-Z-O, Kata Kaludzo. We get the word cataclysm from that word. And he's saying the world underwent a cataclysm, a cataclizo. It was completely inundated. It was completely deluged by water. If you keep your finger here, just turn over one page to the left. Peter had talked about this global flood of Noah before in chapter 2 and verse 5. He says that God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, along with seven others, when God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. See, the scoffers say, well, God has never really intervened in this world. And the truth of the matter is, yes, he has. In the work of God in creation and in the global flood of Noah's day. Now, there are some good Bible students who would say regarding Noah's flood, I think they would say it was only a local flood. It was only a regional flood. It wasn't really a global flood. And I wanted to share with you, because in my personal opinion, Noah's flood was a global flood, And I want to share with you five reasons why I believe the flood of Noah was a global flood. The first reason why is the purpose of the flood. And you can go to Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. You go there and you get a backstage tour of what was going on in the flood. You go behind the scenes there. But in particular, I want you to notice regarding the purpose of the flood, what it says in Genesis chapter 6. In verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6, The Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Then notice what it says in verse 7. So the Lord said, this is the, the whole idea of the purpose of the flood, the Lord said, I will blot out mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Verse 16, or rather 17 of chapter 6, I will destroy all flesh, where? Under heaven, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. This is the purpose of the flood of Noah. Second reason why uh, I believe it was a global flood is the extent of the flood, the extent of the flood. Again, we're going to go back to Genesis. Notice what it says in chapter 7 and verse 9. It says, one remote mountain somewhere, doesn't say that, it says, all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered by the water. In verse 20 of chapter 7, it says, The water prevailed 15 cubits. Now, there's maybe an inch or two different in a cubit, but basically that would be 22 feet higher covering the mountains. You see, that is the 
extent of the flood. And then a third reason why I believe it was a global flood is the duration of the flood. If you go back and you read it, you'll know that it goes on for more than 100 days. And if someone's thinking, well, it was local, you know, there was a a small mountain covered for 100 days with water, it doesn't work that way. I mean, water seeks its own level. You you can't cover mountains for 100 days unless it's more of a global thing. And then a fourth reason why I, I believe that it was a global flood is the need for a gigantic ark. You know, the ark was like a gigantic tanker in our day. And while there can be a slight variation of what a cubit is, which was from an elbow of a man to the tip of his fingers, at a very minimum, the ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. Now, just to give you a little of a context for that, think about the size of a football field, which is 300 feet long. And so then you have to think of a ship that is like another half of a football field longer. It's like a football field and a half is how long the ark was. And then it was 45 feet tall, like four stories tall. So you begin to get a little bit of the feel for it, right? Goes on a football field and another half of a football field, four stories tall. And if you've ever been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, which we have been, if you haven't been there, Google it and look at some of the pictures of the the Ark that they have recreated there and look at the size of it compared to a person standing next to it. You know, think about that. I mean, four stories tall, a football field, another half of a football field long. See, if it was a local flood, you don't have to build a gigantic thing like that. You know, just as you would in any local flood, you would move to another area or you would move to higher ground somewhere, but you wouldn't build a gigantic tanker-like structure. And then the fifth reason why I believe it was a global flood is that God's rainbow promise to never flood the world again is nonsensical if it was a local flood. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 9, verses 11 to 16. We'll get some phrases out of here. He's promising as he gives the the, the promise of the rainbow to never do it again. He says, all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to do what? Destroy the earth. Never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And God says, I am making an everlasting covenant. It is a covenant between God and God. In a small group of people somewhere? No. It's a covenant between God, everlasting covenant, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Not a local flood, but a global flood makes the best illustration of a future coming judgment that is going to come upon the whole world. And he begins to talk about that more in verse 7 when he says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter is sharing with this because, just as Paul thought, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. Now, Peter has a whole lot more to talk about 
a whole lot more to inform us about. And he's going to do that as we continue our study of 2 Peter chapter 3. Well, we've looked at a lot of information and a lot of data today. I want to talk about some life response. We shouldn't come up against and face-to-face with the Word of God, and, and nothing impacts us. So some life response. How can we respond? Well, first of all, for those who don't know the living God, and it's very possible that some of us don't have a relationship with Jesus as our rescuer from sin and judgment, if you don't have and don't know the living God, here is the life response we're suggesting that you do, and that is to turn to the true spiritual ark, which is Jesus. See, the ark is really a picture of Jesus, and Jesus is a picture of the ark. Here's what happened in the the global flood. Those who entered the ark were delivered from worldwide judgment. Same in principle, those who turn in faith to the spiritual ark, Jesus, will be delivered from worldwide judgment. That's the idea. Trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, taking our sins, paying the penalty for them because God's holiness demanded that that be so, and then he rose again from the dead, and trusting in that, coming by faith to the true spiritual ark of Jesus means that when judgment comes, we will be delivered from it. Now, here's one of the lessons from the global flood. When the judgment of the flood arrived, there were no second chances. You were either in the ark or you were not in the ark. And the same thing is going to be true when there's coming judgment upon this world. We're either going to be in the spiritual ark of Jesus or we're not going to be. But there'll be no second chances. But Jesus' appeal to us is reflected in John 5.24 when it says, that he who hears my word, hears the truth of Scripture, and believes him who sent me, what happens? They have eternal life. They do not come into judgment, but they have passed out of death into life. And that's what we want for every person that we know. And that's the appeal to those who don't know the living God. Turn to the true spiritual ark of Jesus. You do that by faith. It's a transaction that happens between your heart and the heart of God. It's an act of faith. I'm going to rely on what he did, not on what I think I can do, in order to be delivered from future judgment. So, how about for those of us who do know the living God? What, what life response should we have? And um, I really love what Chuck Swindoll says about this, and so I'm not even going to try to improve on his wording at all. But here's, for those of us who do know the living God, I think the life response that he has for us. He says this. First, it might be best to understand what you don't do, right? Sometimes we need to know what we don't do in light of this truth. He says you don't dress up in a white robe and gather with like-minded fanatics in a commune or on some roof. You don't do that. He says, you don't quit work and move to the highest mountains to be the first to meet the Lord when he descends. And he says, and you don't try to set dates for his return. That's what we, in terms of life response, what we don't do. Well, what should we do? Well, he goes on to say this. He says, you do, however, get your act together. And I really believe for some of us, that's the message of the Holy Spirit that he has for us. It's time to get our act together. 
You do, however, get your act together and keep it together. You do live every day as if it's your last for his glory. You do work diligently on your job and in your home for his name's sake. You do shake salt out of every chance you get. You do shine the light. You do continue sharing the good news. That's the life response for us because men and women, we have a hope. We have a message that the world needs. I want to lead us in prayer as we get ready to sing a closing song together. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word. We thank you for how powerful it is. We thank you that it's so pertinent. We need this perspective. We need to be reminded of this. We need to not duck away from it. We need to look at what the heart of Peter wants to share with us. And Father, may we remember that you don't want us to run off someplace and hide. You want us to bring hope to the people around us. You want us to stay on mission. You want us to share the hope the gospel, the good news that you have given to us with the world around us and the people who live near us. May we be men and women who understand your plan and live in light of it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.